to their, to their disregard for God. And, and he's challenging, and, and he's challenging them. And you to live your life in that way. It's a stern warning. He says, God turned them over. He, he released them. He said, okay, you, you, you want to just run headlong into your immorality? I'm going to let you go and suffer the consequences that comes with it. And you can imagine the Jews that were sitting there as this letter's being read. They're like, yeah, Paul, get him, get him. We've done all this work. We've, we've followed all these commands and, and we have this history of a long history with you and they just, they're just coming in like that. Yeah, get him, get him, get him. And it felt good. And then, and then they get chapter two and, and Paul challenges the Jews' religious activity. And they said, you look good on the outside, but you're a mess on the inside. And so they kind of had to be slapped back too as well. So we come to chapter 3 where he's kind of, he kind of comes to the close of chapter 3. He's closing this word to the Jews. And then he says to everybody, he says, now that I've addressed each one of you, here's where we're at. And we're spiritually inebriated. We're drunk. Apart from God's intervention, we might not... You know, stumble around like that. But in our hearts and in our heads, we're stumbling all over the place. And our life's a mess. So, let's take a look at our spiritual drunkenness first. And, and then we will uh, get to our sobriety. And let, let me just say this in advance of what we're going to read here. Spiritual drunkenness is not something you can really hide. It's going to be heard and it's going to be seen. And people are going to come and they're going to talk to you about it. They love you. And, and like, like, uh, like the drunks that you know physically, they're addicted to alcohol, they're going to say, I, I don't have a problem. I'm good. But let's, let's kind of understand what exactly is, uh, Paul, uh, how, what I mean by spiritual drunkenness. Because really, um, and drunkenness is kind of a light way to handle it. Because what we're really going to read about it is it's spiritual death. But I thought drunkenness and sobriety play better together. Okay, so that's why I'm taking a little bit of liberty to, um, to use the, the, the metaphor of, of drunkenness rather than death. So let's pick it up with verse 1 of chapter 3. And what I want you to listen for, okay, this is a mock conversation dialogue that Paul's anticipating he's going to get from the religious people in the church, from, from the Jews. He's, he's anticipating what they're going to say back to what he's already, what he has been previously saying. So just... Listen for the spiritual drunkenness, okay, and the spiritual sobriety. Paul is the sober one, and, and the mock uh, individuals that he's, he knows he's gonna, who are going to come questions, they might be silhouettes, they're not necessarily specific names. Listen for their drunk words. Verse 1, <clears throat> so what advantage does the Jew have? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Considerable in every way. First they were entrusted with the spoken words of God. What then? If some did not believe, will their unbelief cancel God's faithfulness? Absolutely not. God must be true, even if everyone is a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and triumph when you judge. But if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I use a human argument. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if by my lie, God's truth is amplified to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim we say, let us do what is evil so that the good may come. Their condemnation is deserved. 
Did, did you hear some, some drunk words there? I mean, you've been around drunk people before. You've heard them like, they've been drinking, right? This is, they're not making any sense. Well, let me, uh, let me point out the drunk words, and then we'll, we'll look at the sober words. The, the drunk words begin, keep in mind, to understand <clears throat> the fir- very first question that Paul anticipates. You have to go back up into chapter 2. And in chapter 2, verses 25 through 30, or 29, yep, 25 through 29, what Paul has done is he's taken circumcision, this, this devout religious um, activity, if I guess, I don't know if you'd call it activity, but an observance that was very important. And that was on the eighth day of every Jewish male, they would be circumcised. And it was a sign of God's covenant that he chose the Jewish people to reveal himself. And so circumcision was just one of those things that the Jewish people did. They followed the commands. They had dietary restrictions, um, all those kinds of things. They had a covenant. And so there was a sign of this very special relationship and the promises that God had made to save his people. And so that was circumcision. Well, what Paul says in the last part of chapter 2 is he, he says circumcision on the outside externally without the inside means nothing. It's a waste of time. He says, really what, what happens and, and what, what's meant to happen is that not only are you circumcised on the outside, but your, your heart, and he's speaking metaphorically, your heart is circumcised. Notice, it's pierced. And, and the inside begins to change as you reali- realize what God has done for you. And, and you change from the inside out. So that all the religious activity that, that people are trying to fool everyone else with, maybe themselves, because there's nothing inside to support it, Paul says... That's not really even what a real Jew is. He said a real Jew is one who has internally been circumcised. In other words, their hearts have changed and they truly have become the people of God. So the Jewish audience is listening to this and they, they're naturally going to ask the question, well then why are we going through all of the rit- religious activities and rituals? Is there really any advantage to that? And my friends, that is drunk speech. Because what that's revealing is it's, re- it's revealing as they understand that the Gentiles are equally <clears throat> saved and, and becoming the people of God as the Jews. And they're just going, that's whacked. Because they're thinking religiously. They're, they're, they're thinking like, well then, what, why did we go through all that? And that is how a spiritually drunk person thinks. They think that if they spiritually perform, their moral performance is good enough, then God will love them. And so they're pushing back on this. And it's just hard. And it's, it's hard for some of you in here. It's hard to let religion go. It's hard to let go of you thinking, God, I've done my part. Now you do your part. When you, when you perceive that you're doing everything that you can or most everything that you can in your relationship with God and something bad happens to you, you, you feel that. I feel that inside. There's that, that momentary, hey, wait a minute here. God, what gives? And when you think that, if you say that aloud, my friends, that is a drunkenness for the world to hear. This, this idea that... Um, that's how God works. And he's actually spent all of chapter 2 trying to get them to understand you've got to let go that your spiritual performance wins or loses my love. God says you've got to let that go. And Paul's answer to that is, verse 2, when they're asking, what advantage is it? Paul says, considerable. 
in every way. He says, first they were entrusted with the spoken word of God. He's saying to all the Jews, you were chosen by God. God revealed himself in a very unique way. And he gave you his very words so that you could understand him. And, he, and you could understand yourself and the relationship that he wants with you. And you were given the words that would talk about the coming Savior, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, so you would know him when he came. He goes, man, that's worth something. Now, you, you're not going to get any salvation credit for that. You're not going to win over God's love because of all the things that you've done. But don't throw it out as if it meant nothing. There are advantages to that. So there's your first kind of interaction between the drunk speech and the sober talk of Paul. What's next? Well, look at verse 3. They say, okay, <clears throat> well, what then? If some did not believe, will their, un will their unbelief cancel God's faithfulness? So this is drunk talk as if God is a transactional God. And all these promises that he's made to save his people that he made back in Genesis chapter 12, all these promises that he's made with these people, they're now saying, well, I guess then, because not everyone believes, is God going to pull up and pull his promises away and the, the covenant is going to become no longer legit. It's transactional. That's how drunk people speak. That's how they talk. There's the fact that there's unbelief must cancel God's promises and covenants, to which Paul says, absolutely not. Verse 4, God must be true even if everyone is a liar. He's saying that God's faithfulness is not dependent upon the other half of the relationship, that is people. God's faithfulness is assured, it is 100% true because he is God and he is true to himself. And there's places in, in the Old Testament where we see that God's, in, in, when he makes this covenant, he ratifies it for, for his doing, but also for the doing of God's people. He covers both sides. In other words, he's going to be faithful to himself, and he's going to be faithful to the people who will be unfaithful to him. And so, this drunk speak, and, and I, I mean, again, I, I think we, we can relate to that to a degree. I, I, I got to know that and believe that our people here, where you feel like you've done something so much so that God said, that's it, I'm tapping out, you reached your limit with me, and, and, and there was guilt and shame, and, and maybe you even kind of you know, just destructively kind of lived your life believing that to be true. My friends, you're spiritually intoxicated, and I am spiritually drunk when we allow that attitude and those beliefs to change how we live and what we believe about God's promises. And, and that's, that's kind of what they do. Uh, and, and Paul just comes right back at him. He says, God's faithful. God is faithful to himself. Now, you may not like the way his promises come to fruition, but they're going to come to fruition. And the Jewish people were looking for a Messiah, a, a military conquering king and leader to, to finally establish Israel as the nation again so that all the occupying enemies could be driven out and they would get their land back and they would stand on top of everybody else. That's who they were looking for. And, and God didn't send that kind of savior. He sent a suffering servant in Jesus. Jesus is gonna come back the second time like that, but not the first time. And so they were missing it because they were spiritually drunk. Like all of us in this room, or I, I'm sorry, let me backtrack from that. Like some of us in this room who have been physically drunk, we don't think well. And that's what's happening here. Now, the last part of this interaction, verse 5, what you see is he says, but if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? 
What they're saying is, okay, if God's glory and his, his honor and his power and his beauty is in his mercy and his grace, then if we're unrighteous, if we don't follow the commands, if we're disobedient, then doesn't that just highlight even more God's righteousness and the beauty of his grace and forgiveness? In other words, doesn't the great means justify, or doesn't the great end justify the evil means? How does Paul respond to that? I mean, that's drunk thinking, my friends. He says in verse 6, absolutely not. And then go down to verse 8, he says, their combination is deserved. <laughs> it's like he's saying, man, those, those words, those, those attitudes, those beliefs are so far off that their condemnation is deserved. So, Paul kind of finishes, all right, done with the Jews. And now he brings everybody together in verse 9. What then? Are we any better? Not at all. For we have previously charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. Again, you, you got to understand how a Jew hears that. A Jew's going, wait a minute, I've been doing this and I've been doing that. We're the people of God. God has a covenant with us. If I'm under sin, that means I'm going to be judged. And if I'm going to be judged, that means the covenant that God said that he was going to save me, he's either pulled away or it's changed. That's how spiritually drunk people think. But what's really important, and we don't want to miss this, is he says that Jew and Gentile, now, we can maybe understand the Gentiles. Yeah, that's the one in chapter 1 that Paul was just laying the wood down, going, you're doing this, you're doing that. You are turning yourself over to all kinds of immorality, the, the type, some of which we can't even say. So, yeah, you're going you, you, to get God's judgment for your disobedience, for the bad you've done. But here's what Paul is saying in that verse to the Jews. He's saying, you're going to be judged for the good you've done. And it's not going to turn out well. You see, the good you've done has been the good on the outside, but with not the motive, the correct motive on the inside. You've been doing the good to save yourself. Faith in yourself. Romans chapter 14, verse 23 says this. Romans chapter 14, verse 23. A little further later, we'll eventually get to this part. As we go through the study of Romans, it says, but whoever doubts stands condemned if he eats because his eating is not from a conviction or your Bible might say faith. Those two words are interchangeable here. And everything that is not from a conviction or faith is sin. Paul's saying everything you do and I do, every good thing that we do that is not driven by our faith in God and what he's done for us and we're a conduit and we're passing on, that is sin and it will be judged. And so the Gentiles are going to be judged for their immorality. They're, they're bad behavior. And we're like, yeah, I get that. The Jews are going to be judged and they're under sin because of their good behavior. Does that describe anybody in here? Last week we talked about motives. The good things you do, why do you do them? If you're doing them to try to get the love of God and, and, and the favor of God, that is sin. That is you trying to save yourself. So all the good things that you do, you go out and you feed the homeless. God, look what I'm doing. You're not feeding the homeless. You're feeding yourself. 
When you do the good things, God, get my attention. You're not doing it for the people you're doing it for. You're doing it for you. No one else can see that. But God can see in each of us the spiritual drunkenness that he is, he's after here through what Paul is saying. So it's just really important that we understand it. Now, there's the, there's the, the conversation between the drunk dude and the sober dude, all right? Now let's talk about what, what does spiritual drunkenness, what does it look like? Look at verse 19. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. Boop, verse 10. Paul lists, these are, these are passages of scripture out of the Old Testament from the book of Psalms, from Isaiah. He's just calling out, he's saying, this has always been here, guys. Let, let me describe for you, what does spiritual drunkenness look like? Well, verse 11, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, there is no one who seeks God. Okay? What does spiritual drunkenness look like? It's the absence of spiritual understanding. It's when where you're thinking and your mindset and my thinking and my mindset, they are bound, they are earthbound. There's no idea, there's no understanding, there's no living in light of the eternal perspective of what is to come. We live for here. I mean, when you get up in the morning, when I get up in the morning, what is driving you? Where, where is your per perspective and focus? Is it here? Or is there any consideration to there? And living my life in light of there. Because if we're driven by here, if we, if we view life selfishly with, with merely an earthly perspective, my friends, we are spiritually drunk. Verse 12. Oh, wait, let me finish verse, verse 11. So there's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. It's like, okay, time out. Back it up, Paul. Beep, beep, beep. Hold on a second here. I know people who are seeking God. I've talked with them. Other faiths, I, I know that they're seeming to be seeking God. So you're going too far here with this. You're just going too far in describing spiritual drunkenness in that no one seeks God. Well, my friends, I bet if we were to ask those who are seeking God, if you were to ask them, are you seeking an absolute, divine, sovereign captain, king, and CEO of your life that you will surrender and submit to, is that who you're looking for? Nope, that's not the guy I'm looking for. What a lot of people are looking for that appear to be looking for God, my friends, they're looking for the things of God. They're looking for the peace and the joy and the strength and the provision. That's what they're looking for. And the moment they start bumping up into the fact that the God that we worship, the God of Christianity, the one true and absolute sovereign God, when they bump into the fact that, wait a minute, I have to surrender my life to him? I'm going to go look somewhere else. So what appears to be seeking is really not the way it appears. And many, my friends, many are seeking that kind of God. Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 tells us that few, few are really driven by the Spirit of God that's awakened in them, believe it or not, a desire for an absolute sovereign captain, king, and CEO of their lives. They realize, I don't make a good manager of my life. And I need to look for one who can. And I'm willing to surrender. And I'm willing to submit my life to this God. And that's a work of the Spirit of God inside. 
And it's not anything we can claim or that we can do. And so in that sense, the Bible says fewer people are looking for that God, the true one true God, than the many that are looking for the things of God. I mean, let's just, we turn away from God. That's what he says. Spiritually drunk people, they turn away from God. It says all have turned away. All like have become useless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. We turn away. We think we're smarter than God. We think we know better. I mean, I've been there, right? You're like, God, I, I, I really know this is what it says to do, but I don't want to do that. I don't think I'll be as happy with that. I, I want to do this. Don't you want to be happy? My friends, that is spiritual drunkenness all over the place. Talking. We're not smarter than God. We don't know better than God. We are at our best when we submit and surrender to God. In verse 12, he says that you become useless. And all I'll say about this is uh, back in October, as I said, that you, you have a, ma- a macro purpose and a micro purpose. What is the purpose of my life? You'll never find your micro purpose without your macro purpose, and you'll never know your macro purpose spiritually inebriated. You just won't. And your life will become, spiritually speaking, will become useless. Now, let's get to what else he says. He says, there is no one who does good, or, or there's no one who does what is good, not even one. Okay, hold on a minute. Now he's going, he's going there again. He's saying no one seeks God. Hold on a second. Well, we, we kind of clarified that. But now he's saying that there's no one who is good, not even one. I know good people. I've seen good things. And you have. You, you've seen maybe single moms who sacrifice everything to get their kids through school so that they have a better life than they have. And, and we, we look at that and we should commend that. We should admire that. We should celebrate that. You see heroic acts in, in war where one soldier goes out to another soldier that's hurt on the battlefield, risking his life to bring him back into the foxhole or wherever he's got to bring him. And, and again, we, we look at that. We should celebrate that. We should admire that. That's good. But that's not the good that Paul's talking about. You see, that good, which is good, has Zero salvation value. Zero. Because as I read in Romans chapter 14, verse 23, every good thing we do, if it's not because of our faith in God and what he's done for us and our relationship with him that then transcends and and moves out over into helping other people because of what we've received, what does Paul says in Romans chapter 14, verse 23? He says it's sin. It's not good in a salvation way. And when you step back and think about it from this vantage point, the single mom and the soldier who are not followers of Jesus, when you stack up those good things I just described and you stack that against a rejection, a rebellion from the one true God, their creator, which is, that's, that's evil, and that's bad. And it swallows up the good. Think about it this way, and I heard this from another, another pastor. I, I changed the story just a little bit, because I think, I think I can tell it better. But here's what he said. Imagine the terrorists on 9-11, and they're making their way to the airport, and they've got their luggage. They're looking like everybody else. And at some point, someone gets their bags for them. Maybe it's off the shuttle bus, or maybe it's just to get it to the gate, or whatever the case might be. And imagine if they tip them really generously. That's good. Yeah, tipping someone generously? I mean, like, really? Yeah, that's good. 
but do we call them good? Because then they go and they do something that is catastrophically evil. And that catastrophic evil swallows up the generous tip, the good that they did. And so in our case, when we reject and rebel from the the God that loves us so much that he sent Jesus Christ, his son, to live in our place a perfect life, and then to die on the cross a substitutionary death, and then to raise him three days later to say, this is the guy, and when you put your faith and trust in his work, you become a child of God. You're forgiven for your sins, past, present, and future. God becomes our God, and he provides for us, and we reject that. Can you see now how Paul can say there is no one No matter what good things you do, if they're not out of faith in the God that I just described, there's no one that does good, not even one. Only spiritually drunk people will not understand that. And then in verses 13 through 17, he describes this spiritually drunk person as being dishonest. He says, the throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Vipers Venom is under their lips. In other words, these verbal bullets that just fire away and they, 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 they're, they're meant to hurt. They're meant to pierce. He says, their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. They, they hurt people. They leave a wake of destruction and heartbreak around them. And the path of peace they have not known. And then verse 18 is kind of this summary verse. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Let me just ask you, Do you fear God? Let's go back to, remember, liquid courage? Those of you that have had too much to drink, you've probably kind of had that experience a little bit. You know, that liquid courage is you kind of feel like you're a little tougher than you are, a little smarter than you really are, and and, uh, maybe a little more outgoing than you really are. And man, you've said some things and done some things, and you think, I mean, you, you get that little burst or is it just me? I'm just, I'm, I'm, do I get an amen for that? Does someone help me with that? Okay. All right. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, people that are spiritually drunk, they don't fear God. They'll say some things and do some things, and, and they'll not say some things and not do some things because they don't have any fear of God because they're spiritually inebriated. They are drunk as a skunk. A little parenthetical um, note here. I believe the, the understanding the fear of God is something we miss. And so I'm gonna, I've got a message series planned in 2023. We're going we're gonna to kind of really do a little deep dive on what that means. Because I, I need it for myself, if nobody else, just to really kind of revisit that. But there is spiritual drunkenness. Okay? I, can we all understand? Can we all relate? Because we really need to, to understand that. Uh, to understand spiritual sobriety, I think we really got to understand spiritual drunkenness. Now, here comes the note-taking, generally speaking, and this is going to go rather quick. Let's talk about, remember we said, what is spiritual sobriety? Why is it important? And how? How do we get or return to be spiritually sober? Well, what I mean by spiritual sobriety, it's, it's, it's when you are broken and you recognize and understand how broken you are, that you need a Savior, and that your moral performance is not anywhere near good enough to get the love of God and the forgiveness of God. It's when you come to that moment and you just kind of realize, boom. And I love the way Paul says it. Look in verse 19. He says, now that we know that whatever the law says speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut. 
and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment for no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. That is an incredibly sobering statement and a sober statement. But I want to pull out so that every mouth may be shut. How do I break out of my spiritual drunkenness? I want you to picture yourself standing in court. And the judge is about to dismiss the jury to go come back with a verdict. And I want you to imagine standing there. And you have heard mountains upon mountains of evidence about your guilt. And it just sits there. And the judge says to you, Mr. Sullivan, do you have anything to say? And your response is, your honor, I have nothing to say. You are so convinced of your guilt that you know to say anything would be the most foolish thing. It would even be betraying what you believe inside and what you've come to know. I'm guilty. And you would throw yourself on the mercy of the court. Please have mercy on me. And that is the beginning of spiritual sobriety. That is when you break out of the drunkenness and inebriation that Paul has described in chapters 1 and 2. And you now feel the freedom. You smell the fresh air of sobriety. So that being sobriety, why is it important? Why does it matter? Well, for one, it will grow you closer to God. When you're open, when you realize what he's done, and when pride, the Bible says that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. When your heart is open, you realize that's where you're, you're not, you're not thinking I'm smarter than God. You're not thinking I know better than God. You're saying, God, I surrender to you. I, I, I surrender. And that opens up that relationship. And I don't know what your relationship is like with God. Is it, is it transactional? Is, is it doesn't exist? Is it just kind of ho-hum? Is it you taking them off the shelf every now and then when you're in trouble? Or is it vibrant? Is it alive? Is it really, do you feel the, the, the sobriety and the freedom in that? Secondly, is it protects you from being judgmental. It protects you from, from relating to people in a judgmental way. Because you realize, who am I? Who am I? I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm somebody that didn't deserve to get what God has given me. And it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with him. You see, Christianity is the most humble faith of, that you'll find. Now, sadly, Christians don't portray it that way at times. But the guts, the, the essence of Christianity is we're broken. We can't do it ourselves. We're, we're, we're lashing out trying to find something and God grabs our hands. He says, I can do it. God, take me. No, Your Honor, I have nothing to say. Thirdly, is it promotes people listening to the gospel. When we share the news of Jesus and, and people know us to be humble, it gives the gospel a hearing. The thing that makes me <clears throat> maybe more mad than anything else, it is when Christians see non-Christians acting in a non-Christian way and point it out 
in an arrogant way, expecting non-Christians to understand what Christians do, but how can they? Because they don't know what Christians do. And they hold them accountable, and they, they, they get on them, and, they, and somehow they think that's a virtue. It's ridiculous. It's drunkenness is what it is. We humbly go. I, I know that. I, I, yeah, I struggle with that too. Look, can I tell you where I found sobriety? It's not me. I, he found me. It makes all the difference in the world. And then lastly, is it leaves you and me open to learn from our brokenness. To not justify it. To not explain it away. But to say, no God, I have nothing to say. And, and you're open. And, and God wants to now begin to teach you and grow you as, a, as, as this incredible, beautiful creature. That he's, in Christ you become new. You become everything he wanted you to be. But spiritually drunk people will never find that. Only spiritually sober people will. So with that spiritual sobriety kind of in mind, may I just finish with this. For this week, I, I want you, maybe even ongoing, is I want you to work the steps. I read the first three steps from Alcoholics Anonymous. I changed these steps just a little bit. But I want you to work these three steps. Step one comes from Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, which we just read. There's no one good, not even one. And so with that, I want you to say, and I, and I would encourage you each morning, that you would start your morning with this. I admit that I am powerless over sin, and apart from God's intervention, my life would be a mess. Just, just start there. Read three, uh, Romans 3, 10 through 12, and just read that and personalize that, and then just say, I admit I'm powerless. I am powerless over sin and apart from the God's intervention, my life would be a mess. Then step two comes from Philippians chapter two, verse 13. Paul says, for it is God who is working in you, enabling you both to desire and to work out his good purpose. God is at work in you. You don't have it. He does. And so step, step two would follow step one and you would say, I have come to believe that God through Jesus Christ saved me from sin and has a plan and purpose for me. Just say that. Not fast. Just let, kind of savor the words as you say that. And then in step number three, <clears throat> Jesus said in Luke chapter nine, verse 24, he says, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Step number three is that we would say, after we've said steps one and two, I made a decision to turn my will and life over to Jesus to follow him every day. And start your day with that. Just see where it takes it, okay? I'm going to ask the band to come on out here, and I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have communion. So if you just kind of came in just a little bit late, and you don't have a communion cup and want to take communion, then you have a chance to go back to one of those tables. But um, I'm going to pray and just uh, let you have a moment as you hold these cups, and then we're going to take each one of them separately. Father, thank you so much for your patience and your grace and mercy with us. Our desire, Lord, is to be spiritually sober, to be free. And I pray, Lord, that today the service, the teaching, our observance of communion would be helpful for us in that way, that we would walk out of here free. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So you've got your, your cup there. Let's, let's take off the top layer, which is, I'll get you to the bread, to the little wafer there, biscuit, whatever you want to call it. But what this is, this represents the body of Christ. 
that God who is spirit, he came down to that which he created, earth, in a human body in the person of Jesus. And Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he, he had his disciples around him and he took the bread. He said, this is my body, guys. He obviously is speaking metaphorically, but he's saying, my body's going to be broken for you. What I'm about to go through is for you, for the forgiveness of sin. So I want you to think about this bread and what it means to you and to me and the freedom to be spiritually sober.